0: Welcome to the Alpha Ministries podcast. Alpha Ministries is a recovery church whose mission is to teach individuals and institutions to recognize and apply the gospel of grace, building stronger families and communities. Today's podcast is focused on one of the 12 steps of AA. John Glenn taught the 12 steps to the church because Alpha Ministries contends that all people need recovery from something. And the 12 steps is the best program out there and most closely reflects the idea of discipleship and relationship jesus had in mind enjoy and glean from the message and remember one day at a time
1: talked about in our last session as a critical point in our recovery i want us to talk about that critical point again this evening in terms of what i've identified as turning the relational corner. On the first three steps, there is naturally a relationship between you and God. So I'm gonna put God up here. You and God, that's established in the first three steps where you recognize you're powerless, you turn your will and your life over to the care of God as you understand him, In the third step, and you've, you've essentially had a spiritual awakening what the big book of AA calls a spiritual experience or a spiritual awakening, you've begun a personal relationship between you and God in those first three steps. Then in steps four through seven, you're concerned with a relationship with yourself. You're doing that fearless and searching moral inventory. You're appraising yourself. You're looking at yourself, and you're developing, in essence, a relationship with yourself. Now that relationship, with yourself is to get you to the point where you can accept yourself. And so the acceptance of yourself is to eliminate in a healthy way your character defects, your wrongs, your shortcomings, what the Bible refers to as the flesh. In order to develop a healthy relationship with yourself, a new identity is required. You receive that new identity in the first uh, three steps in which you actually develop a relationship with God, whereby he did something miraculous for you. He did something for you that uh, theologians for years, Bible scholars have been trying to understand for years. He actually made you a brand new person. The very heart issue of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the fact that when he died on the cross, that old person you were with all of its character defects, all of its shortcomings, all of its wrongs, died with him and a brand new person was raised up. What's left behind in these physical bodies of ours is what the Bible identifies as the flesh. To know that we are not the flesh, to make this distinction between our new identity as being a child of God, as being separate from our flesh, is absolutely essential to develop a healthy relationship with yourself. If you continue to think of yourself as the flesh, you can't do an effective fourth step because you'll be too busy trying to cover it up, trying to hide from it. You can't do a, f- a fifth step, an effective fifth step, in agreeing with yourself and God and another human being the exact natures of those nature of those wrongs because you, you'll be blinded to those na- the nature of those wrongs. You won't be able to see them because, again, once again, you're gonna be too busy trying to cover it up, trying to hide it, trying to minimize it, rationalize it, or justify it. So, steps four through seven are critical in developing a healthy identity, a healthy relationship to yourself, as you humbly ask God to remove these shortcomings. Now, at that point, you're ready to turn the relational corner, which we've done last week, and concern yourself with your relationship to others. When you're concerned with your relationship to others, now, the very first thing you're going to do in step eight is you're gonna make a list of people that you've harmed. Now we're we're working on that list already from doing an effective step four because you've outlined situations and circumstances in your life historically in which you had resentments or fears that involved other people. So already you've begun a list in step four. But in step eight, you're going to be more specific about that and you're gonna try to identify the list of people actually writing down the names of people that you feel that you may have harmed in the past and in addition to that you're going to become willing to make amends with it now willing to make amends is not as easy as it sounds it doesn't it doesn't come about just because you write their name down Just because you write their name down on the list doesn't mean that you are willing to make amends with them. As a matter of fact, if you do this honestly, when you write their name down on the list, it may trigger in your mind the bitterness or the same fears that you had prior to that. And you may not be as willing as you need to be to make amends. What do I mean by make amends? I mean heal of relationships. I mean, engage in a healthy, loving relationship with that individual again, whether it be a friendship or it be a relative, whatever relationship you had prior in which they were harmed, you're willing to do your part to take care of your side of the street, so to speak, as the big book says. You're gonna clean, clean your side of the street at least and, make, and be willing to actually have a relationship with that individual to one degree or another a healthy relationship in which you are not going to be harmful to them. Now, step nine is a little advance on that. After you've become willing to make amends, then in step nine, you actually put it into action. As a matter of fact, that chapter in which uh, the steps eight and nine are recorded in the big book is entitled, Into Action. And the theme of that chapter in the big book is faith without works is dead. What he means by that is the fact that we can say we believe all we want to, we can say we've had this wonderful experience with God and we've had this new awakening, this spiritual experience, and that we are learning to identify ourselves as being separate from our flesh. We can talk about that without walking it. We can talk the talk and not walk the walk. We can develop a form of hypocrisy at that point, saying that we believe something. And we may be sincere. We may genuinely, in our hearts, really give mental assent to the fact that we are a brand new person that's capable of having a healthy relationship with others. But it's not until we actually take step eight and nine that we actually put it into action And so step nine in particular says we made amends, actual amends with the persons we had harmed that we made a list about in step eight. We made amends where possible. Now, we've got to have to talk about this in this session because there are some relationships that it's not possible for you to make a full amends with them for various reasons. It may be that they don't want to have anything to do with you it may be that to try to make amends with them would stir up a lot more trouble and problems for both of you. And so it couldn't, there couldn't be a full amends. It may be that the person that you harmed is dead, has died, has gone on. And it's impossible for you to seek to make amends with them in that in the typical way we think of making amends and developing a, a healthy relationship. There are innumerable, Types of amends here. We're not going to take the time tonight to go through all of those various types. I'm just simply illustrating the fact that you have a willingness to make amends, and where possible, you actually do it. You actually put it into effect. When it comes up, according to, as we'll learn later in step 11, the personal leadership of God in your life, when He arranges the circumstances. You actually follow through. You actually seek to make amends with that individual. Now, in order to connect, again, I've, our methodology in the study of these 12 steps has not been to read what the big book has to say. You all can read the big book uh, yourself. You can read that, those chapters, that chapter on into action, and you can see what it has to say about steps eight and nine. In fact, I encourage you to do so. But our methodology is to go beyond that and to connect what the big book actually says concerning these steps with the biblical concepts known as what we've studied in a series called the Alpha Series. So I want us us to make a connection here that concerns step nine in particular, but also we can kind of lump step eight involved in it. And it has to do with what Jesus actually explained to his disciples concerning offenses. That is, where one person harms another. And I want us to review that information tonight, just to, in this session in particular, because there's some real important concepts about not just being willing to make amends, but actually making amends. A real important concept that we've got to underscore here. And in, in our scriptures, in the Bible, in the good book, in Matthew 18 in particular, we have the words of Jesus concerning what AA would call step nine. That is, making amends where possible. But It's a little different context, and so I want to back up and give you the... the a basic context in which Jesus spoke these words so that you get an idea of how how it applies, not just in terms of the ninth step here, but in our own lives um, particularly and individually. In chapter 18 of Matthew's gospel, in the very first verse it says, at the same time came the disciples unto Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, Let's just stop and consider this question for a moment. Here these men were, following Jesus, by using the term disciples. Now, we're not sure whether it uh, was exclusively the 12 men named apostles who were also disciples, or it included a larger group of them. But nonetheless, they were those that were learners. They were followers of Jesus. And they were arguing among themselves kind of an ongoing argument about which one of them should be the greatest in the kingdom. Now, if you follow that out, just logically, in order for any group of people to be arguing and fighting about which one is the greatest in the kingdom, there has to be a lot of offenses going on. There are people who are proving that they're the greatest at the expense of others. When they came to Jesus about this, Jesus... When he, when he heard them, saw a little child, or called a little child over unto him, in verse 2, picked him up and set him in his lap. And he said, now, except you become like this little child, you're not even going to get into the kingdom, much less be the greatest of, in, in essence. What he was saying is, is, except you, like this little child, come to me in childlike faith, Allow me to make you great in my love. You're not even going to see the kingdom. But then he goes on to give a very stern warning here. He says, whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, The same is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoso shall receive one little child, in my name receives me. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones, shall harm one of these little ones, which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depth of sea. Now that's pretty graphic language all of a sudden. Very, very intense. Well, here's the connection. We're now looking at step nine at people we have harmed. So we are the offender, if you will. We are putting ourselves in the place as the perpetrator of the harm, the hurt. And what Jesus is actually saying, it would be better for us if a millstone were tied around our neck and we were cast into the sea. Now think about that for a minute. That's real strange and graphic language. I don't know what it does to you, but it gets my attention real quick. Y'all know what a millstone is, right? It's a big old rock they used to to grind up grain, corn, etc. Probably weighs a ton or more. Now tie a rope around the millstone, tie the under, under, other end of the rope around your neck and throw it into the sea. What's going to happen to you? Real quickly, if it doesn't break your neck and kill you on the way down, you're not going to tread water with a millstone. So you're going to drown quickly. In either case, you're going to die quickly, aren't you? In essence, what Jesus was saying, this is how graphic and how intense this was, it's better for you to die quickly than to go around harming other people, hurting other people. Now, we all think that this is extreme. We all naturally think, oh, no, Jesus, you can't really mean that. You can't. He wouldn't go that far. No, he was dead serious about it. As a matter of fact, he went on to explain. He says, woe unto the world because of offenses. You see, Jesus was a realist. He said, woe unto the world because of offenses, because people harm each other. Remember what we're doing in the ninth step? We're looking at the people we've harmed. Well, that's a normal, everyday experience. People harm each other. They've been harming each other ever since Cain killed Abel. People harm each other. That's an ongoing process, and we become desensitized to it. and That's why we think, well, it ain't no big deal. But it really is a big deal, as far as God is concerned. Us harming another person is a big deal. Jesus is a realist, and he knows that that's been happening since man was created. He knows that people have been harming each other, so he says, woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come. He knows we're going to offend each other. He knows we're going to get mad. He knows we're going to have fights. He knows we're going to harm each other. Now, this next woe that he pronounces, though, is totally backwards to our natural thinking. It says, Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offense comes, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. The offender. The perpetrator. Now think about it a minute. What we're dealing with here is one person hurting another person. And naturally, when you see that occur, When you see one person hurt another person, the person you naturally feel sorry for is the person who was hurt. In fact, we frequently refer to them as a victim. They're a victim of this perpetrator's offense. And so naturally, our heart goes out to the poor, innocent victim who has been hurt here. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. His woe is not upon the victim. His woe is pronounced upon the perpetrator. The one Jesus is feeling sorry for here, if you will, is the one who did the offending. That person who does the offending, that perpetrator, that one who does the harm, in Jesus' own mind, in his estimation, is in worse shape than the victim, than the one who was hurt but woe unto that man by whom the offense comes. Now, it's hard for us to understand this for two reasons. Number one, we're used to harming people, and we're used to seeing people harm people. We've become desensitized to it, so we think, well, it's no big deal. We just brush it under the carpet and go on about our business. But when you get to step eight and nine in a recovery program, then you've got to get honest about this. Then you have to stop and take a deeper look at this whole issue. You can't just sweep it under the carpet and go on. And it's, as you'll see this all the way through, the account given in the big book and that chapter into action, they'll say repeatedly over and over again, your recovery depends on this. If you cannot deal with the offenses of the past, you will not recover. It will not happen. It is inseparably linked to your recovery. That fits in with what Jesus just said when he said, woe unto the man by whom the offense comes. Woe to that one who is harming others. Why? Because they can never recover until they deal with that. They can never recover. Now, there's an underlying concept I know I'm I'm gonna have to just hit the highlights of this, but there's an underlying concept in steps eight and nine that I want you to to be able to grapple with in an intelligent way to be able to do those steps, to actually do those steps. And that same concept is implied in these verses that I'm just reading here concerning the offenses, and particularly the one who's doing the offense. And the concept is a little four-letter word called hate. A little four-letter word We don't like to say it, we don't like to admit it, we don't like to look at it, we like to sweep it under the carpet, but it's called hate. And it is the primary motivational factor, the primary emotional condition of our old identity of the flesh. It's hatred. And unless we learn to deal with our own hatred, we cannot have healthy relationships with others. Unless we learn to deal with our own hatred, we cannot in any way engage in a healthy relationship. We are going to continue to harm people. I mentioned to you in our last session in step eight, we're going to, in these steps, break a very common cycle, personal cycle, relational cycle that goes on in our everyday lives called what I call the hurt-hate-hurt cycle. People who are offended, people who are hurt, people who are harmed, naturally, within a 30-second window of opportunity, naturally, their flesh bows up and reacts and responds with hatred, from which we seek revenge, make all kinds of plans on what we're going to do about that person that offended us, in one way or another, or what should be done. People who hate wind up hurting, harming others. So when you're hurt, you're going to hate. When you hate, you're going to hurt. When you hurt, someone else is gonna hate. And when they hate, they're gonna hurt. And you get in this vicious cycle, this hurt, hate, hurt, hate, hurt, hate, hurt, hate, ongoing vicious cycle. In order to have healthy relationships with others, We are going to have to learn to break that cycle. We're going to have to learn to make amends. See, what I want you to connect is steps eight and nine with breaking the hurt, hate, hurt cycle. How do you do that? You actually make amends. Now, there's several other important concepts we've got to discuss as we go through this, so let me hurry through this Jesus at this point uses some very very graphic language here to describe how it is we're going to deal with a natural hatred in our own flesh I know we don't like to call it hatred we don't like to say we've got hatred but in reality if we're going to be honest with ourselves, if we're going to do that searching moral inventory we talked about in a fearless way we're going to have to come to grips with the fact that our flesh hates It's not just angry. It might be angry for 30 seconds, but then it's going to hate. And our hatred causes hurt. Not only through acts of commission, direct offenses, but acts of omission. When we don't do the things we could to help others. So that hatred actually causes us to hurt other people. Well, in order to deal with that hatred, Jesus gives us some very graphic language here and let me warn you, give you a little disclaimer that uh, practically every year I hear about or read some newspaper account of someone that actually took these verses literally and actually did this Uh, I'm not suggesting you take these verses literally as I'll explain here in a moment, but it is very graphic language, listen to what he says here, wherefore if thy hand or thy foot offend thee cut them off and cast them from thee. For it is better for thee to enter into life, halt or maimed, rather than having two hands and two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if thy eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life with one eye only rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. Now, what he's talking about here is how it is we're going to take heed, he says in the last verse, take heed that you despise, hate not one of these little ones, for I say unto you uh, that in heaven there are angels who always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. So what he's talking about is how we deal with hatred. How are we how we're going to take heed not to despise another person? How do we deal with it? Well, he uses real graphic language here. Dealing with your own hatred would be like cutting off your hand, your own hand, cutting off your own foot, or poking out your own eye. Now you think about that a minute. That wouldn't be an easy thing to do, would it? Perhaps you've read stories or heard horror tales of someone who was out in the wilderness to actually do that, to set themselves free and to save their own life, they had to cut off their own leg caught in a trap or in a rock or something like that, or they had to poke out their own eye for some reason cut off their hand. What's involved in that process? I know it's graphic language, but what he's really talking about here to make the figurative application in our life is it is going to hurt. There is going to be some self-inflicted pain when it comes to you dealing with your hatred. There's going to be some self-inflicted pain. And it is for that reason, because it's painful. Just like cutting off your own hand, cutting off your own foot, poking out your own, own eye. It's painful to do that. And because of that, not many people wanna do it. Not many people want to deal with their own hatred because that hurts. There's an emotional pain associated with personal pain associated with number one identifying and recognizing the fact that there is hatred in your life and number two getting rid of it so it's a painful process but as he goes on to assure us it's a necessary process because if we go through this process painful as it may be to us if we go through this process we can enter into life rather than be cast into Gehenna, literally, which was the trash dump outside of Jerusalem. So it's a difference between whether we're gonna experience life as those who are worthy or life as those that are worthless. The difference is whether we're going to deal with our hatred or not, whether we're going to deal and go through that self-inflicted pain. So how do we do that? The best way I can describe this for you is by giving you an example from a fellow by the name of Earl. Earl was in one of my alpha classes in the recovery program at Faith Farm years ago, and one of the first students to go through the alpha series with me. And we were processing this one day in group, this very thing we were talking about, dealing with hatred. And I could see Earl was agitated, and so I asked him, I said, Earl, what's what's troubling you? And he says, you know, I've been trying to deal with hatred all my life. So give us a story here, tell us about it. And so he did, he said, when he was a little fellow, his daddy had left him, abandoned the family. He was only two or three years old. So his mama had to go to work every day to support him and she left Earl as a little boy with her mama, grandma. Now grandma was from the old school when it came to discipline in little boys. And what grandma did on a daily basis was to discipline Earl, who was an active little boy, was always getting into trouble, this, that, and the other, but she disciplined him in a very harsh way. Her method of discipline was to put Earl in a burlap bag and beat him with a stick till he quit moving or crying on a daily basis. Then Earl could behave himself. Naturally, Earl grew up hating grandma. But he not only hated grandma, his hatred generalized. He hated mom for leaving him with grandma. And he also hated dad for abandoning the family so mom would have to. Ultimately, Earl hated God for allowing the whole thing to happen. And I could see as we were processing this and talking that Earl was agitated, so I said, Earl, What's, what are you struggling with? He says, I've tried, I've tried, and I've tried to reconcile this. You see, Earl managed to grow up, endure the beatings of grandma. He actually graduated from high school, was fairly successful, had a job, but he had a problem. When he got his paycheck on Friday night, Earl would celebrate his success by stopping by and drinking a little bit with his buddies, and it got beat a little more and a little more and a little more, but it didn't stop there. When Earl got home in a drunken state, guess what Earl did? Same thing Grandma did to his kids and his wife. Finally, Earl was arrested for domestic violence on one occasion, and he wound up in a recovery program Faith Farm. And Earl said, I've been trying to deal with this all my life. I see it's destroying my life, this hatred I've got. But what can I do? My grand- I've tried to forgive her. I've written letters of forgiveness. I've tried over and over and over again. I pray to God to let me forgive Grandma. Nothing. So I stopped. I could see it was very painful. He was hurting. I said, okay, Earl, let's try something here for you to forgive grandma, your mama, your daddy, God, in order for you to forgive, you're going to have to be forgiven because you can't give what you don't have. In order for you to give forgiveness to those that have hurt you, you're going to have to receive forgiveness. This kind of throw him off a little bit. What do you mean receive forgiveness? I said, Earl, how long have you been hating Grandma? I said, all my life. I said, do you think you're hating Grandma, which is basically the same thing as murder in God's eyes, do you think that's any better than her beating you? He stopped and thought about it. And immediately he could start seeing how his hatred that he had harbored his entire life was no better than grandma's dysfunctional beatings. said, so Earl, have you ever asked God to forgive you for your hatred? Have you ever asked God to forgive you for hating grandma? In order to help him with that, I reminded him of Jesus' own experience When the men tacked him to a cross. Remember what Jesus prayed? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, he was asking God to forgive them, not to be religious. Okay, he was, in his mindset, living out the reality of functional, healthy life. While he himself is being abused, while he himself is being hurt, He's praying forgiveness for those who hurt him. Had he not prayed for forgiveness, he would have hated him. Never mind had he not prayed for forgiveness, his angels would have melted the flesh off the bones of the men who were trying to crucify him. Had he not prayed for forgiveness, he would have hated him. You see, it's an either or. You, could think, you, you might think on this business of forgiveness, you know, we can kind of move into a neutral position. You know, I'm not really forgiving them, but I'm not really hating them either. No, it's a black and white. It's an either or. You can't move into a neutral position. If you're not forgiving them, you are hating them. When they crucified Jesus, he forgave them, so he wouldn't hate them. Anything less than that is dysfunctional and leads to the problems Earl had. It made sense to Earl, and that very day, he asked for forgiveness from God, not only for hating his grandma, but for hating his mama, for hating his daddy, and ultimately, and this is a very important concept, for hating God, who is sovereign, and in control of all things, who allowed the very things to happen our hatred ultimately goes back to God it doesn't just stop with the people that offended us here on earth it goes back to God ultimately and when Earl asked God to forgive him when he made that connection he received forgiveness for his hatred which is literally just sent away God sent his hatred away That's the literal meaning of forgiveness. It means to send away. God sent Earl's hatred away. Earl experienced that, and for the first time in his life was therefore able to honestly forgive his grandma as well as God. To honestly experience the forgiveness of that hatred being sent away. Now, it was a painful process for Earl. When he went through this and recounting the story, it hurt him. And there's that self-inflicted pain, willingness to look at the hurt. It was painful, but Earl entered into life. was able to graduate the program, reunited with his wife, and as far as my knowledge goes, getting along well today. Now, what Earl did and asking for forgiveness for his hatred, and dealing with his own hatred is what prepared him for the ninth step. It's what prepared him to be able to truly make amends. This is the fundamental mistake that most people make because as you go on in this passage, I'm gonna read a couple more familiar verses to folks, especially in the religious scene In the church world, these these verses are real uh, familiar and generally taken out of context and misapplied. So I want to connect them here to the ninth step for you. Jesus goes on to say that we should not end this discussion of offenses with us just receiving forgiveness for hating the people who offend us he begins to turn the corner and we drop down to verse 15 and concern our relationship to others. So in verse 15 of the same context, he says, moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. And if he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. Now he's talking about putting it into action. Now he's talking about making amends. Now here's a mistake that the church world religiously makes. They try to do verse 15 before they do the first 14 verses. If you try to go make amends, actually make amends with someone without recognizing honestly and dealing effectively with your own hatred, it will blow up in your face it will make things worse. The relationship will degenerate even further. You see, the only way that you can honestly do step eight and nine is to deal with your own hatred. Now, even though they do not include that in the big book, if you'll read carefully, those paragraphs having to do with steps eight and nine you'll see repeatedly, over and over again, they're they're warning you. They're saying, don't go talk about that man's fault. Don't go tell them how much they hurt you. Don't go telling them how they wronged you. You concern yourself only with your own stuff, not with theirs. And over and over again, in the language of the big book, you'll see it implied everywhere, though it's not stated, that you're going to them to heal a relationship by owning your side of the dysfunction. The only way you can do that is to eliminate hatred. There is no other way for you to do that. If that hatred is still in you, if it has not been sent away, when you try to approach those that you've had problems with and who have harmed you and you have harmed in return, it'll resurface again and it'll create more problems. So it's very, very important that we learn to do the first 14 verses, that is, deal with the self-inflicted pain of our own hatred before we go to the one who is offending us, before we go to the one that, that has harmed us or that we have, in fact, harmed because they've harmed us. You see, every person that you wrote down in step eight, you have a reason for why you hurt. Every person you harmed You've got a reason in your mind for why you did it. You didn't just wake up one day and indiscriminately go out and try to harm people. That's not what happened to you. What happened to you was you got hurt. You were a victim. Somebody let you down. They didn't do what you wanted them to do. Or, just in a casual way, you used people to further yourself, your own position, and that harmed them. Whatever the case may be, those people that you harmed, you have rationalized in your mind already why it is you harmed them. It's like the thief who says, well, they have plenty of money. They won't miss this, so I'll steal from them. Well, and I've heard addicts say this, actually. Well, my parents should have given me this in my inheritance. They didn't, so I ripped them off, okay? I mean, they've got neatly rationalized little excuses as to why they've harmed somebody. A lot of those are because the person they harmed had harmed them. So you get this vicious hurt, hate, hurt cycle going on in those relationships. Somebody has to break that. When you do steps eight and nine by dealing with your own hatred first, then you break the cycle. You can break it right there. Now, when that cycle is broken, you are forgiven of your hatred. Then and only then can you be led of the Spirit in love to make amends. Only then can you make amends. There is no guarantee that amends will be made because, remember, a relationship is a two-way street. It takes the cooperation and involvement of another human being to have a relationship. But you have done your part. You have, you have taken care of your side of the street. Whether they do or not, your recovery is no longer in jeopardy because you have completed your part, regardless of their response, good, bad, or ugly. But most people, when they report doing a ninth step in actually making amends, have this exhilaration, have this sense of joy Sense of completeness, like it's finished, it's done. A load lifted off of them that allows them to continue in recovery, without which you're always ducking, always looking. So, steps eight and nine are absolutely vital. Now, in closing this session this, this evening, I want to read you some promises that I use to describe the NAT result of what we call recovery. I use this with people who are in just starting out in recovery in the orientation phases, who are just contemplating whether they really want to go through these steps, especially steps four through seven or eight and nine, whether they really want to go through this or not. They know they need to. They know they need some kind of recovery. They know they need recovery, but they're not sure they really want recovery. And so I try to paint a picture of what recovery looks like for them, and I've found no better picture painted anywhere than right here at the end of the ninth step and what the big book actually says, the promises concerning recovery. Listen to them as I read them to you. It says, if we are painstaking about this phase of our development, what phase he's talking about specifically is steps eight and nine, but ultimately steps one through nine. If we're painstaking, that means we're sincere, we're doing it, even though it's har- it's, it feels hurtful to us, there's a self-inflicted pain here. If we're painstaking about this phase of our development, we will be amazed before we are halfway through. We're going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. We will not regret the past, nor wish to shut the door on it. We will comprehend the word serenity. And we will know peace. No matter how far far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. That feeling of uselessness and self pity will disappear. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. And they go on to say, ask this question, are these extravagant promises? We think not. They are being fulfilled among us, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. They will always materialize if we work for them. So what's the promise here? This is what recovery looks like. It's a brand new lifestyle, a life of peace, a life of serenity. You're no longer running from the past, hiding, hoping not to be hurt or seeking to hurt. It's a life of liberty, personal freedom of recovery. These promises, I think, are the outcome, specific outcome of steps eight and nine. We're painstaking about those two steps, steps eight and nine. We have turned the relational corner. We are developing relationship with others. And our love for others will be its own reward in our recovery. We're going to quit here for tonight let you take a quick break and then come back. Tom will process with you a little bit on steps eight and nine.
0: Thank you again for listening. If you want more access to Alpha Ministries teaching, you can like us on Facebook, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and visit our website. All times and dates for services and other events are on our website listed in the show notes.